the King James Version of Proverbs 4.13 reads like this, take hold fast, or fast hold, take fast hold of instruction, let her not go, keep her, for she is thy life. Take fast hold of instruction. Uh, our old friend, Pastor Charles Spurgeon, once said of this verse, he said, Faith may well be described as taking hold upon divine instruction. God has condescended to teach us, and it is ours to hear with attention and receive His words. And while we are hearing, faith comes. And that faith, even that faith which saves the soul, to take fast hold is an exhortation which concerns the the strength, the reality, the hardiness, and the truthfulness of faith. And the more of these, the better. If to take hold is good, then to take fast hold is better. Even a touch of the hem of Christ's garment causes healing to come to us. But if we want the full riches which are treasured up in Christ, we must not only touch, but take hold. And if we would know from day to day to the very uttermost of the fullness of His grace, we must take fast hold. And so maintain a a constant and close connection between our souls and the eternal fountain of life. It were well to give such a grip as a man gives a plank when he seizes hold upon it for his very life. That is a fast hold indeed. We are to take fast hold of instruction. The best of instruction is that which comes from God. The the truest wisdom is the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. And of that, therefore, we are to take fast hold. Hold fast. Cling for your lives. He says the best understanding is obedience to the will of God and a diligent learning of those saving truths which God has set before us in His Word. So that in effect, we are exhorted to take hold of Christ Jesus our Lord, the incarnate wisdom in whom dwelleth all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are not to let him go, but to keep him and hold him, for he is our life. Does not John, in his gospel, Tell us that the Word is our light or our instruction, and at the same time, our life. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The more we abide in the Lord Jesus and the more firmly we take hold upon Him, the better it will be for us in a thousand ways. And then he says this, of preaching this particular sermon, his particular sermon, He says, I intend at this time to speak as the Holy Spirit shall enable me upon this fast hold. And I reckon that the subject is one of the most important which can occupy your attention at this particular crisis in the history of the church. 
this particular crisis in the history of the church. Spurgeon lived in the late 18, early 1900s. What was the crisis? What was the crisis facing the church in Spurgeon's day? It's the same that we face. It's the same as today. Spurgeon continues just a little bit more. He says this, Many there be around us who believe in Christ, but it is a very trembling faith, and their hold is unsteady. We need to have among us a men of tighter grip who really believe what they profess to believe, who know the truth in its living power and are persuaded of its certainty so that they cannot by any means be moved from their steadfastness. Among the vacillating crowd, we long to see fast holders who are pillars in the house of our God, whose grasp of divine truth is not, of, not that of babes or boys, but of men, full-grown and vigorous. Proverbs chapter 13. Turn there, if you would, if you haven't already. I'm going to read this chapter. Proverbs 13. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked uh, brings shame and disgrace. The righteousness, righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. The light of the righteous uh, rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. By insolence comes nothing but strife. With those who take advice is wisdom. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is the tree of life. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are rewarded with good. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Righteousness has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. Let's stop and pray. Father, I pray that you would um, feed us today, that you'd give us what we need, help us to understand, 
and to apply uh, these truths, the truth of your word, to not only to our minds, but to our hearts, to our lives, to our families, to the church. Father, I pray that we would do these things, hear these things, listen to these things, apply these things to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we've seen uh, for the last couple of weeks and for really the month of December, um, as we've been studying the book of Proverbs in a few different spots, uh, this book, Proverbs, is, is framed as a, as a father uh, passing on the fer- family heritage of wisdom to his son. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of passing wisdom from one generation to the next. And in this chapter here today, Proverbs 13, um, we can see some clear uh, life principles, so to speak. Um, and we can see some... Some, some godly teachings of wisdom being passed on, but there's connections between them, and we're going to look at those today. Throughout these, these teachings, and, and when we talk about these teachings of passing on wisdom, I, I'm really talking about all of the book of Proverbs, or all of Scripture, really. Um, throughout this, especially in Proverbs, there's a, there's a constant comparison and contrasting between the wise and the fool right? Wisdom and foolishness. And although there are certainly, there's other contrasts in Proverbs as well, including often it will contrast the righteous and the wicked, um, even in this passage. But the main overarching theme of Proverbs is wisdom versus foolishness. But there are some similar contrasts too. So the contrast between wisdom and foolishness is about really a person's character, right? Are you a wise person or a fool? Um, it's about his decision-making ability, uh, how he raises his children, those types of things. But there are other contrasts of outcome, so to speak. So, so here's what I mean. The outcome of the life of a fool could be marked by all kinds of different results. Even we see these in the book of Proverbs. He could end up dying from some disease or other, right? Because of foolish choices made in his youth or even throughout his life, he might end up dying an early death. He could wind up dying in prison or dying deep in debt because of foolish decisions. The examples are actually kind of endless of how the outcome of the life of a fool um, can be illustrated. But one of the most common sort of contrasts of outcome in Proverbs is goodness versus violence. In fact, violence is seen throughout the book of Proverbs and even in all of Scripture as one of the most common attributes of godless people. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, it says it like this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all violence or leads to violence, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
See, godlessness and violence in one form or another go hand in hand. We could even say that that violence is actually the opposite of self-control. Jesus Jesus taught us that that related to violence, self-control is not just simply fist control, right? Self-control, in fact, in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus taught it like this. He said, you've heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, so internalized violence, so to speak, is a breaking of God's law. Self-control in Jesus' teaching then is obviously, it is not only fist control, it's speech control, controlling your tongue. It's even mind control, taking every thought captive, as Paul will put it. It's, it's that seething anger that nobody sees but you. When you go into the closet or the other room when you're angry and you hit something, and nobody even knows that? Jesus is saying to take those things under control, that it is not self-control when you do that. And so in Proverbs, when the topic of, of violence comes up, it brings with it notes of, of warning. It brings with it thoughts of anguish and threats of disaster. And not, not for the person you're angry with, but for the one who clings to the violence. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is this. What should be the outcome of my life? Let me ask it a little more specifically. Do I want goodness and righteousness to characterize the heritage that I am passing on to my family, to my friends, to the people around me, to the youngers in the church? Or would I prefer strife and violence? Would you want to pass on goodness and righteousness or strife and violence? Well, if you prefer goodness and righteousness over strife and violence, then keep listening because there are other benefits as well. Of course, if you prefer to pass on a legacy of strife and violence, I will still ask you to keep listening. (laughs) But I'm also going to call on you to repent because you're in very real danger of possibly not only not inheriting the kingdom of God, as Paul says there in Galatians, but also of facing God's wrath, of facing, of being, being the recipient of God's righteous and just violence toward you and toward your sin. But I trust that most of us in here today want to pass on a heritage of goodness and righteousness. So let's talk for a bit about the other benefits that we see here. And, and it starts with really, really speech and, and industry or, or work ethic. Speech and industry. This is verses 1 to 6. Let me read these verses again. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, 
but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but who, he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. Now last week, we saw the importance of, of passing on instruction and discipline, which, Lord willing, will, will result in holiness. And, and thinking about speech now specifically, the things that we say, Jesus said it this way in Matthew 15, verse 11. He said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then just a few verses later, so Matthew 15, verses 17 to 20, he continues that thought, and he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Can you, see, can you see those things, that list of sins that Jesus mentioned there? Can you see those sort of practiced in these verses, verses 1 to 6? In fact, just, just look at the first two verses again. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer or a mocker does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Now, I know, I know for a fact that some of your fathers, literal fathers, did not, did not leave or pass on godly instruction. I know that. I know that some of your fathers did not leave a heritage of godly instruction. And I'm I'm not here to lay a bunch of law on you, but rather to give you hope in Christ. Hope that things can and will change. That with the power of the Holy Spirit, you are able to change, as I've said over the past couple of weeks, you're able to change the, the trajectory of your family. For it is God who works in you, to will, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And it and it's through the gospel that he does this. It is through the good news of Jesus Christ. See, through the gospel, Christ sets us free and works in us that we may pass on a godly heritage to our own kids, to the generation following us. And so that first sentence there of verse 1, it should not be read in isolation. In fact, every word of that first verse of verse 1, is actually repeated. The whole concept of verse 1 is actually repeated. It's actually seen all over chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs. We looked at chapter 4 last week. When, when the father is giving instruction, he's giving lectures or, or lessons to his son. A wise son hears his father's instruction. What instruction? Well, it's everything written in the book of Proverbs, but it's not limited to the writings of Proverbs because it's also everything written in God's law. 
But it's not limited to the law because it's also everything written in the prophets. But it's not limited to the law and the prophets and the writings because it's also the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. A wise son hears his father's instruction. We are to pass on the instruction of God's word to our children, to the generation behind us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the idea behind this. That's what the instruction is. Now we could argue that a a father's instruction is more than just simply the Bible and the application of the Bible. Right? Fathers instruct their children. Parents instruct their children on more than just the Bible. We understand that. But it's not anything less than that. It has to start there. A father's instruction must have the Bible, God's Word, as its basis and starting point. And then as I've mentioned, the contrasts really throughout this chapter... Um, Notice notice that sharp contrast between the wise son in verse 1 and the scoffer. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer or a mocker does not listen to rebuke. That should really stand out to us. That concept of a wise son versus a, a scoffer. It should stand out to us especially when we realize that at our very best, we are not wise. What does that make us? (laughs) At our very best, we are not wise, not on our own. So that makes us scoffers and mockers because we're sinners. But the hope that we have is that true wisdom is Jesus Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, 21-25 says it like this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then in verse 30, he continues that thought. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Wisdom, the wise son, is Jesus. And we need to put on Christ or we are mere scoffers and mockers. So the wise son is Jesus Christ even submitted to the, to the violence of the cross on our behalf. Hebrews 5.8 kind of connects all of this together by saying, though, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered on our behalf. He listened to the instruction. And so we as sons put on Christ, which transforms even our speech and our um, industry or our industriousness, our work ethic. Notice that verses two and three and verses five and six in those first that first section there, Proverbs 13, they're parallels about speech, things that we're saying. 
and they surround verse 4, which is clearly about diligent work. Do you see that? Let me read 2 and 3 and then 5 and 6. So verse 2 says, From the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Verse uh, verse 3, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. Whoever opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The the person who talks too much, right? Verse 5, The righteous uh, hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. But in the middle of that is verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. The soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Now, the word, um, the word desire in verse 2 Verse 2 says, from the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is, uh, is for violence. That word desire, um, it can also be translated as appetite, what he's hungry for, which might be an easier way to kind of tie these contrasts together. Um, Notice the personal nature of verse 3. It talks about his mouth, his lips. It's talking about about talking, right, about speech, but there's the imagery of eating in all of this, right? His desire, his appetite, his mouth, his lips. In in verse 2, it's it's slightly more general. Um, One way of looking at this is to say that verse 2 affects the entire community, and verse 3, the individual, right? His mouth, his lips. Of course, those things really can't be separated. Individuals are part of a community. A community is made up of individuals. So, since we're still in the opening verses, let's pull all of this together. The speech of a wise son, one who is clothed with Christ, is careful to feed or edify the whole community all of those around him. But in contrast to that, the words of a scoffer or the words of a mocker bring violence and destruction. Verses 5 and 6 say the the same thing, essentially. And look at all of the consequences here. Just in these verses, we see violence, ruin, shame and disgrace, and sin. This is the opposite of of wisdom, which is characterized here by that which is good. It's characterized in these few verses by the the preservation of life. It's characterized by a a hatred of falsehood. It, It is blameless. And right in the middle of all of this speech and desire is a shift from talking to doing. Again, verse four. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. That word craves, that's a synonym for appetite or desires, but it's spoken of here kind of negatively, right? We might even say lusts after. So just as the the cravings of of the treacherous destroys a community, right? The cravings of the treacherous destroys a community. Verse 2, so the desires of a a sluggard drain the community of its resources, verse 4. And the things the the sluggard lusts after and yet doesn't get, 
They can even be what is good from, from verse 2. The sluggard wants good. He wants a, 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 he wants a big paycheck. He wants a big house. He wants a nice whatever, car. He wants to be known as someone who is wealthy, and yet he's a sluggard. He's craving after these things. Looking up online and watching YouTube videos on how to get rich quick. And I know that kind of throughout this section, I've, I've used the word community. But that could mean the destruction that the sluggard brings. That could mean the family, the person who is refusing to work and is lazy. The sluggard can bring destruction to the family, can bring destruction to the church, treachery to the church, or even the community as we think of usually the word community, right? The place that we live, our town, our state, our whatever. Now, one more connection before we move to the next. In verse 3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. In verse 4, the the diligent is, is richly supplied, abundantly provided for, that means. In other words, God richly provides for diligent, hardworking, industrious people, but He denies uh, provision for lazy sluggards. That's what He's saying here. This is even the case in the church. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul instructs us, for even when we were with you, he says, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We're not talking about unable, right? Unable to find a job, unable to... We're not talking about unable, unwilling. That's what a sluggard is. Someone who says, no, no, you feed me. I'll just sit here. You bring it to me. Charles Bridges, I I mentioned him last week, he said this. He said, the sluggard desires the gain of diligence without the diligence that gains. He would be wise without study, rich without labor. And at this point, I should say this. I think uh, in our circles, um, we, have a, we have a correct, it's right, to push back against all things prosperity theology, right? Name it and claim it type of theology. But I think that sometimes we swing too far in the other direction. We either develop a, a poverty theology where we believe that to be, to be poor or at least to live poor um, is more godly in and of itself, or we feel guilty if, um, if we buy something, especially something that others can't. Um, and then even worse than that, I think, is when we see someone, someone else spend money on something that we can't, we envy them, and we ascribe bad motives to them, even if just kind of out of the side of our mouths. And maybe even those bad motives are something along the lines of that, that kind of sarcastic, must be nice. Must be nice to have that new whatever. But the Bible has a lot to say about wealth and ethics. The Bible has a lot to say about these things. Let's read verses 7 to 11. Wealth and ethics. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but a poor man hears no threat. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. 
By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Now, this section here, in verse 7 especially, is kind of an ambiguous verse. Um, what, what is verse 7 saying? One pretends to be rich yet has nothing, another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. It's just simply saying that both, are, both of these pretenders are liars and frauds. Um, both of them are fools. Both of them are lying. See, possession of wealth in itself does not make anyone godly or ungodly. Possession of wealth in and of itself does not make anyone godly or ungodly. Um, neither, uh, neither does the absence of wealth, uh, neither is that an accurate uh, baram- barometer of godliness. And so both of these pretenders in verse 7 are liars who should rather be grateful to God. See, throughout the Bible, when you, when you look at individual people all through the Bible, you're going to see godly, wealthy people and godly, poor people. You're going to see Abraham, who even as a private citizen was as wealthy as, as, as any of the kings around him. And you're going to see Jesus commending the faith of a poor widow who gave all that she had. Two small, practically worthless copper coins. You're also going to see ungodly people from both categories as well. You will see ungodly kings and ungodly paupers. There are advantages to disadvantages to both wealth and poverty. And you know what? Satan understands this as well as anyone. In Job chapter 2, verse 4, he actually argues with Yahweh. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. This is one of the, one of the dangers of riches. And, and Jesus warns about this type of danger several times in the New Testament. Riches can make you vulnerable to attack. That's what verse, the first line there, verse 8 says. Job, Job learned this lesson. And make no mistake, that was spiritual warfare all through the book of Job. And the Lord graciously gave us an inside look at that. But look at the subtle shift in verse 9. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. See, in the middle of this, This is no longer about wealthy versus poverty, but rather it is about righteous and wickedness. Do you see the the comparison? It really isn't about about rich and poor. And it's a little more clear even in verse 10, which says, By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Insolence there means, means pridefulness. There are prideful wealthy and prideful poor. But all through this book, we are called to listen to advice, to pay attention to the instruction of the Lord. We're called to pay attention to discipline. We're called to work hard and to hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, to rejoice in the light of the righteous one, capital righteous, capital one, is the point of all of this. But don't miss the condemnation of slothfulness. 
Don't miss in this the the praising of the diligent throughout this chapter. That's where verse 11 goes. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little diligently will increase it. Get-rich-quick schemes may appeal to our emotions. They certainly appeal to our sinful desires. They appeal to our appetites, to our lusts. But the Scripture here lifts up the accumulation of wealth through diligent work. There's a parallel to this in chapter 12, verse 11, which says this, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Here's the point. The Bible, God's Word, repeatedly calls us to work hard, to build wealth, to provide for our own families, to support the work of the ministry, to help the poor. And even down in verse 22, he says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous, because the meek shall inherit the earth. But remember, all of these instructions are related to godliness and wisdom. Not just the accumulation of stuff. This is about building a faithful legacy of godliness and righteousness. This is about building a a godly heritage that we pass on to the generations that follow us. See, I firmly believe that Christians ought to be the hardest working, most diligent and faithful people in your company. I believe that Christians ought to be the ones who are starting and and running profitable businesses. We ought to be the ones who are providing well for our families and churches and even jobs for our community. And so I ask this question to a room full of largely industrious people who are doing these things. For what or whom are you working Why are you accumulating wealth? And if you've noticed, there's no definition of wealth here. I just want to point that out. We have assumptions when we hear the word wealth. When we think of wealth, usually the definition that we think of is something somebody else has. When we think of a wealthy person, it's anyone who has more than me. But that's not accurate. And I'm not going to go down this road. I'm not going to kind of insult your intelligence by pointing out that we live in a wealthy society because it doesn't always feel like that to everyone. We don't feel wealthy, many of us. So I could ask it this way instead. For what do you desire to build wealth? Or build up a nest egg or however you want to put that. For what do you desire to do that? For yourself? For your retirement? Again, that's fine. But is that the extent of it? Or to pass down some sort of inheritance that is wrapped up with godliness and wisdom, with righteousness and goodness? Do you want your life and legacy to be one of passing on a big house full of stuff? Or a house that follows the Lord. A house that is built on the righteousness of Christ. A family and a legacy that pursues godliness and contentment. 
Do you want your life and legacy to be one of fulfillment, real godly fulfillment, or of frustration? That's where he goes next. Pick it up in verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but whoever he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a, is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. Now, I'm sure that if you read through this, you can see the kind of the obvious pattern in these verses. But don't miss the fact, I just want to point out, that verse 12 and verse 19 act as brackets around this section. Notice the common language of desire fulfilled in both verses. It's clearly that desire fulfilled, it's actually presented there positively, in a positive light. Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So here's how this works. As we delight ourselves in the Lord more and more, as we conform our minds to the mind of Christ, our desires of our hearts, they will become more and more conformed to the desires of the Lord's heart. So that our desires, our appetites, our cravings are less about the stuff we want and more about the things that the Lord wants. The desires of our heart become more godliness, more Christ-likeness, more blessing others and, and pursuing the kingdom of God. Do you see the other kind of inside those brackets? There's another set of brackets um, look at the similarities between verses 13 and 14 and verse 18. Look again at 13. Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. The, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Verse 18. Poverty and disgrace come on him who ignores instruction. Whoever heeds reproof is honored. When we are, as we are increasingly delighting in the Lord. We are increasing in our Christ-likeness, and so we, we work to pass on a, a heritage of faith to our children and children's children, which might mean for us, as many of you have done in the last couple of years, it might mean contributing to the purchase of a new church meeting house, right? To leave an inheritance to our children and our children's children. A, a debt-free inheritance that they may meet here after your funeral was done in this room, that our children may still use this to further the kingdom of God. It might mean seeing that the church has the, the pastors that she needs to carry on the heritage to the next generation, again, which you are doing. Are, are we doing this this legacy building, this heritage building in order to pass on to our children, to that next generation, the good sense, the prudence, and the faithfulness that verses 15 to 17 mention? That's what we're doing. That's why we're doing it. 
And all of this, all of this that we're doing, it's not just simply so that we can have a nice church and a happy home and a nice place to retire. It's because we're trying to pass on a heritage of godliness to our children and our children's children. All of this leads to righteousness. In fact, we can see this in this last section, this this righteousness versus wickedness. I'll finish up with this. Verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster pursues sinners, but the righteous are are rewarded with good. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. The fallow ground of the poor uh, would yield much food, but but it is swept away through injustice. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. This is the future for wise descendants, and this is contrasted in here with the future of our foolish descendants. (laughs) Beloved, we, we understand that it is God who saves, right? We understand that it is God who saves, that it's the Lord who turns the hearts of men toward Him, even the hearts of our children. This is a call for one generation to pass wisdom, the wisdom of God's Word, in all of these areas onto the next generation and for the next generation to receive it, to listen and obey, to learn. And so I want to say to the olders in the room, pass it on. Pass it on. And I want to say to the youngers in the room, receive it. Listen to them. Uh, us. The olders. Receive it. And I just want to point out that this finishes with an emphasis on contentment. Look at verse 25. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. The belly of the wicked suffers want. The truly righteous, the truly in Christ, will pass on a heritage of a holy ambition. Listen, ambition even in your job, is not wrong. In fact, it's, it's good. It's um, foolish ambition or selfish ambition that is wrong, that is clearly sin. But the truly righteous will build and pass on a heritage of a holy ambition that is wedded, that is connected to a, a holy contentment. And our contentment must have Christ as its source. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You are we are passing on a legacy. And so we must work to make that legacy a legacy of goodness and righteousness. We must work to be sure that that legacy that we are passing on is not strife and violence, 
It's not selfish ambition and vain conceit, but that we are passing on a legacy of goodness and righteousness. Pray with me. Father, I pray for the children in this church that they would receive and hear and see in us goodness and righteousness, that that they would see in us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that they would see the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives, that they would receive that, apply that. Father, I pray for the elders of the church, that we would pass those things on, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that the Spirit would be working so that we might pass on those fruits. Father, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would be diligent, that we would guard our mouths and our minds, that we might speak the truth and do so in love, that we might be careful to pass on a heritage of faith and godliness and goodness and righteousness, a faith of Christ-likeness. Father, as we come to the table, we come to the Lord's Supper now. We come knowing that without Christ, we would, be, we would be still dead in our trespasses and sins, that violence and strife would mark our families forever, that it would mark our hearts and our minds, that sin and iniquity would control us. But because of Christ, we, are, we have been set free from that. And so, Lord, as we come to eat and drink and so proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until he returns, we come with hearts of thankfulness. And so, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.